How many of you stayed up late watching the ACC basketball tournament like I did last night? And you're here. Pat yourself on the back. Thank you. All right. Thank you for being here on Time Change Sunday. And uh, if you're like us, we made certain that we uh, switched our clocks forward, forward. Last time there was a time change, we forgot. And we were glad that we made it to church on Sunday. But we didn't forget last night. Um, our scripture lesson now today, as we draw our attention to it, is from Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Follow along in your Bibles or on the screens as I read. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. And the people said, Amen. It would be helpful today as we reflect on this passage to do a little bit of backstory or some contextual work so that we can understand why Paul wrote this to the churches in Ephesus. He had visited Ephesus early in his second missionary journey and then made his way back to Antioch of Syria where his missionary journeys originated. The church at Antioch of Syria was sort of home base for Paul as he would embark on his missionary journeys. He spent time in the synagogue there in Ephesus and debated with the leaders. And on that second journey, they asked him if he would stay with them longer, and he declined. He said, I will come back if it is God's will. And you find that in Acts chapter 18, verse 21. And Paul indeed left Ephesus at that time, but he would soon return. And return he did, and he stayed three years, the longest stay in any city during the entire ministry 
that he undertook for the Lord. Ephesus is located in modern-day southwest Turkey. And in Paul's day, it was in the province of Asia, and it had a, a, a river that uh, emptied out into the Aegean Sea. So shipping and trade and commerce were all uh, very much an integral part of this port city. Ephesus was founded by the ancient Greeks, and then about 130 years before Jesus was conquered by the Romans, and um, uh, of course under Roman rule at the time Paul was writing. The city was known to be the center of the worship of a goddess of nature and fertility that was the Greek goddess Artemis, the Roman goddess Diana, the same. There was a temple uh, built and devoted to Artemis. It's one of the seven uh, wonders of the ancient world. Artemis and the followers of Artemis had a tremendous influence on the culture and the pagan worship that existed that uh, the ones who had come to Christ had to um, deal with. That was in their backstory. Paul would have journeyed up and down the colonnaded streets of Ephesus that led to the 2,400-seat amphitheater there. He would have enjoyed the, vol the many volumes in the um, magnificent library and, of course, debated in the synagogues. One church historian sums up Ephesus. He writes, it was the Las Vegas of the ancient world. Gives you a little sense of what Paul faced as he ministered there. It's no wonder that he spent so much time planting churches and equipping le leaders in that region. A great riot even took place at one time because of the way that Christians led by Paul, influenced by Paul, and the churches had influenced the economy. Because Christians' lives had been changed and transformed, their purchasing habits changed. They were no longer pagans purchasing idols that were made in the markets, but rather they were spending their money elsewhere in more productive ways. And the artisans got very upset and there became a riot, and Paul was really blamed for it all. But it's amazing to see the transformation that took place in and around Ephesus because of the work of Jesus Christ. After the riots took place, I felt, uh, Paul felt that it was time for him to, to move on and make his way back to Jerusalem. About five or six years later, he wrote this letter to the Christians there, and scholars believe most scholars believe that he wrote it from prison in Rome about the same time that he wrote Philemon, Colossians, and Philippians, known as the four prison letters. Paul had learned that there were false teachers that had been working to influence the Christians and their churches, and this uh, major false teaching was known as Gnosticism. It starts with the G, G-N-O-S-E, Gnostic. It comes from the Greek word Gnosis, which means to know or to understand, knowledge. And in his letter, he wanted to help them to have some reinforcement in their faith to, to really get back to the basics, to remind them of what, where they had, from where they had come and what they believed. Gnostics had a distorted view of the Christian faith. 
one of the groups of Gnostics denied the very humanity of Jesus. More, he was more of a spiritual being. And another group denied both the divinity and the humanity, that there's no way that that could happen both at the same time. And still yet another view was that Gnostics felt you could do whatever you wanted to with your body, because the body didn't really matter, but it was the mind that was really supreme. Paul knew that he needed to address these concerns, and he sent his letter, which was a circular letter, uh, that was distributed to the Christian churches all around the region of Asia there uh, uh, by the hand of a man named Tychaeus. And you see that in chapter 6, verse 21. Luke records that Paul had a deep sense that the believers would face some trial. This is before all of this happened. In Acts 20, verses 28 through 31, Paul addressed a group of leaders from Ephesus. And this is what he said. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he, brought with his, which he bought with his own blood. Paul writes, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. He almost has these prophetic words that false teachers are going to come. This is in Acts 20, verse 28 through 31. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So not only external threats, but false teaching from the inside. And then in verse 31, he says, so be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So while Paul was in Ephesus, he was doing the work of shepherding and pastoring warning them that these kinds of things could come, especially in that culture and community. He was preparing them for these difficult times. Now he hears that it's happening, and he writes a letter to give them more encouragement to remind them of their faith, where they had come from, and what God had done. The first few chapters of Ephesians focus on the work of God in Christ Jesus, more theological work, and the final three chapters focus on unity and the integrity of the local church. The former being more teaching and the latter being more application. And after reminding them of God's great love for them in Christ Jesus and how they were God's chosen sons and daughters adopted into the family of God, he offered a prayer of thanksgiving. And then he helped them to reaffirm the message of God's grace and how God had saved them and that it was not earned, but simply received through faith in the obedience of Jesus Christ. Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2 are some of the most important in the, Old, in the New Testament, particular verse 8, where we see him say that salvation is by grace through faith. I want us to look at four reminders of God's love and purposes for Christ followers in uh, this passage of Scripture in chapter 2. Uh, the first reminder that he gave them is that each of us has a B.C., each of us has a past. If you are a Christian, you have a before Christ. You, have, you and I have a, a past. Sometimes we regret our past or we wish we could have changed our past, but when we became Christians, God said, I'm making all things new. You don't have to dwell on your past. It's been forgiven and all things are made new, and now you're under grace. That each of us has a, a B.C., a before Christ. Verses 1 uh, through 3. 
He says you were dead in your, sin, your transgressions and sins. Uh, the word transgressions is a word that means to fall away from or to step outside of. And the word sin comes from a, an archery word that means to miss the mark. And he, he says, formerly you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. And when you're dead in your transgressions or sins, there's not a thing in the world that you can do to get out of it yourself. God had to do that work. And that's the work of the cross. That's the work of, that Jesus did on the cross for us by grace. And we trust through faith as we believe in him. In verse 2, he says, in which you used to live. He said, this is your past. You used to live there when you followed the ways of this world. And then he says something confusing in that last part of verse, verse 2. And he says, uh, you followed uh, not only the ways of the world, but the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He's referring to the spirit of the adversary, the spirit of Satan. And the rule, he ruled, meaning the, the kingdom of the air, there was this thought that evil spirits lingered low in the atmosphere. And the more dense, lower, foggy atmos- air in the atmosphere it was uh, where the evil lurked. And then um, God supreme, supremely reigned in the higher atmosphere. So Paul is saying, you, you, you used to be ruled by this. But you've changed. And he says, all of us, and he puts himself in here, all of us also lived among them at one time in the B.C. All of us, including Paul's own self, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we, again, this is plural. He says, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's what we deserved. But then he says, but God. And if you study the story of Nicodemus going to Jesus at night, uh, he's trying to understand this new life. What's it mean to be born again? And Jesus tells Nicodemus the story of the Israelites in the desert and how they complained against God and God sent snakes. But then God told Moses to have the people put a snake on a pole and lift it up. And if they just looked at it, they would be saved. And Jesus is like, Nicodemus, can you explain that? Nicodemus is like, Well, no. And then he says, well, Nicodemus, it's hard to explain the work that Jesus did. He just, he did it. It's hard for us to to logically explain it. And there's a place where we just have to take it on faith. And that's what we do as Christians. We receive God's grace by faith. Billy Graham did that. Before the Reverend Billy Graham became a confidant to commanders-in-chief in our country, and before he became known as America's pastor, he worked for the family farm Graham Brothers Dairy outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. It was there on the dairy that forged his character and love of God's creation. Life was hard, but it was simple. Whether it was taking care of his pet goats or going out on Sundays to get ice cream in Charlotte or watching Will Rogers movies with his family, the days of the small town would shape the man that the Reverend Billy Graham would become. When he was 16 years old, the Reverend Dr. Mordecai Ham came to Charlotte for a series of revival meetings, and Billy wanted nothing to do with it. 
he scoffed at his parents' religion, and he also scoffed at this evangelist who was coming into town. Well, a family friend convinced Billy to go to one of Dr. Ham's meetings, and he said, Billy did this, quote, It was like Dr. Ham was speaking right to me. What was slowly dawning on me during those weeks was the miserable realization that I did not know Jesus Christ for myself. I could not depend on my parents' faith either. He continues, Christian influence in the home could have a lasting impact on a child's life, but faith could not be passed on as an inheritance, like the family silver. It had to be exercised by each individual. I could not depend on my church membership either, nor could I depend on my own resolution to do better. I constantly failed in my efforts at self-improvement. And Billy Graham says, as a teenager, what I needed to know for certain was that I was right with God. I could not help to admit myself that I was purposeless and empty-hearted. I tried to get out of things like family prayers and family Bible reading and church going. In a word, quote, I was spiritually dead. You see those same words in the first part of the letter to the Ephesians. Dead in our sins. And when we are in that place, we are stuck and we can't get out of it. We need God's help. That one night, Dr. Ham gave the invitation to accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And he quoted Paul who wrote, while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. And on the last verse of the second invitation song, young Billy made his way to the front and prayed with a family friend to receive Jesus as his personal Savior and Lord. And later that night, he got down on his knees, went at home and said, Lord, I don't know what happened to me tonight. You know. And thank you for the privilege I've had tonight. Even Billy Graham had a BC. It started with a simple response in faith, and it transformed his life and transformed the lives of millions of people around the world as God worked through him. And Reverend Graham, as you know, died recently at the age of 99. And what a legacy he leaves to us. Because of grace, because of what God done in his life, he was transformed, people were transformed. By God's grace, we are a transformed community. Verses 4 through 7, a few of the concepts that Paul gives us here that speak to transformation. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, no longer dead in sin, alive in Christ. Zoe is the Greek word, zoe life, not bios, physical biology life, but zoe life, the spiritual life. All things are made new. We are alive with Christ, even when we are dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us. Alive with Christ, raised up with Christ, seated with Christ, the throne of grace. These are things that are yet to come, but uh, Paul is saying when you are 
made new in Christ and alive in Christ, all of the promises through all eternity are made real even right now. You, you can claim those promises as yours. We are transformed. And God causes us to do things differently, to think differently, as the believers were doing in Ephesus, even down to their spending habits. It gives us a different way of looking at not only our communities, but even our churches. The well-known preacher who's in heaven now, Fred Craddock, one of the uh, best-known preachers in the modern era, speaks about his father who had been diagnosed with cancer of the throat. And his father, for years, didn't want to have anything to do with the church. And every time a pastor or an evangelist came by the house, uh, his father was very cynical and just accused them of trying to get his pledges and get his money. Fred Craddock says, I guess I heard it a thousand times. But one time he didn't say it. He was at the VA hospital. He was down to 74 pounds. They had taken away his um, vocal cords, and so he was not able to speak. The nurses said, Mr. Craddock, you should have come earlier, but his, his cancer is far advanced. We'll give him radium, but we don't know the outcome. Fred Craddock said, I went in to see him, and in every window, potted plants and flowers. Everywhere there was a place to set them, potted plants and flowers. Even on that thing that swings over your bed so that you can eat your food, potted plants and flowers. There was a stack of cards next to his bed, 10 to 15 inches deep. He says, I looked at the cards I sprinkled that were sprinkled in the flowers. I read the cards beside his bed, and I want to tell you every card, every blossom, every potted plant were from groups. Sunday school groups, women's groups, youth groups, men's Bible class of my mother's church. Every one of them. My father saw me reading them, and he could not speak, but he reached over and took a box of Kleenex and wrote me a note. And on the side of that Kleenex Kleenex box were inscribed words from Shakespeare's Hamlet. Fred Craddock's father said this, In this harsh world, draw your breath in pain to tell my story. And Dr. Craddock said, what's your story, Daddy? And his father wrote on the box of Kleenex, quote, I was wrong. He had experienced transformation. He started to see things differently. Craddock says, it is not until you know God is seeking you in love, not in condemnation. It is not until that moment that the gospel becomes good news for you. In John 3, 17, God did not send his son to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. We might not be able to understand it fully. We might not understand God. We might not understand grace, but we, but we know it and we can receive it. Grace is God's part. That's the third thing I want you to remember. Grace is God's part. Faith is ours. We are saved by grace through faith. 
Some of you might still read the Sunday funnies in the paper edition of the Richmond Times and Dispatch. And you're probably familiar with Dennis the Menace, the mischievous little boy wearing those coveralls and bothering Mr. Wilson next door. In an old Dennis the Menace cartoon, Dennis and his little friend Joey are leaving Mrs. Wilson's house, their hands full of cookies. And Joey says, Dennis, what did we deserve to do to get these cookies? And Dennis replied to Joey, Mrs. Wilson gives us cookies because she is good, not because we are good. That's grace. And the fourth thing I want us to remember today is uh, since we have a B.C., there's an A.D. The year of the Lord, the time in which we live, is a hopeful future to become an authentic picture of Christ to this world. An authentic picture that when people wonder what Jesus is like, they can look at us and they can hopefully find an answer. The world does not have an authentic picture of Christ except when they see him in us. That's the way God has designed it. We are his workmanship. The NIV says handiwork. We are created in the image of a loving God. This goes all the way back to Genesis. Paul is picking up on language from Genesis chapter 1. Created in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. We are God's handiwork. We are God's workmanship. The New Living, we are God's masterpiece. I love that way of describing it. The New Revised Standard, we are what he has made us. The Amplified, we are a work of art. The Message uh, Version, God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work that he does. And you can just see the artisans, uh, whether it's pottery or stained glass, or making mosaics, or creating a piece of furniture. Uh, Jesus himself raised up as the son of a carpenter and would have been a carpenter until he started his public ministry. It helps you to see the way that God creates and is at work and has called us his masterpiece, his works of art. This quilt that you see down on the front of you is another example of a work of art put together by many squares becoming one quilt, pieces of old fabric put together to make something beautiful. It's over 100 years old. The back is not very pretty. Oh, but the front sure is beautiful. God has taken the patches of our lives and he has woven them together and we are indeed his masterpiece. And when we go out into the world, we are the way that people are able to see Jesus. Paul wanted the Ephesian Christians to remember that. He wanted them to know whose they were and who they were. He's building them up to help them to see the potential that they had as Christians and in, as churches. To remember that they had a past, a B.C., that, but that they had been redeemed and that they had a present, that they were God's workmanship, created in God's image to do good works that God planned in advance for us to do, and that they had a future that they could rise to become whatever it was that God desired for them to be, to rise up and move from what was, that we might rise up to receive the free gift of God's grace, that we might rise up to become a giving and love-bearing community, 
that we might rise up to be an authentic picture of Christ to the world around us, that we might rise up as beautiful masterpiece works of art uniquely created to bear the image of the artist who created us, that we might rise up to fulfill the divine purpose of the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And when someone is cynical about Christians and churches, that we would be so relentless in the pursuit of what is good and right and loving that people would be willing to say, I was wrong. And when someone asks what they do to deserve this good grace, this love from God, this forgiveness, this new life, that we simply would say, God did not send his one and only son because we are good, but because he is good. Let's pray.